This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to John Lilly from Greylock and former CEO of Mozilla. We discuss his current stint as a venture capitalist, his earlier tenure in Mozilla, and how they orchestrated the Firefox browser to take on Microsoft's Internet Explorer and succeed with the lessons learned from technology-enabled blitzscaling. Hi, John. Hi, Bernard. How are you doing? I am very good. How are you doing? I am very good. And thank you for taking this interview. Well, I think it's about 15 hours time difference. I'm talking to John Lilly, partner at Greylog, and also former CEO of one of my favorite web browsers, Mozilla, Firefox. So John, it's been great to get on your show. And I have to thank Gang Kanai for doing the introduction. I wanted to start off to get to know you better. How do you start in your career? Well, a long, long time ago, I, I wrote, you know, computer programs and that kind of stuff when I was a kid. And then, you know, I went to Stanford University for school and just fell in love with computer science and designing computers and that kind of stuff there. And then I had an internship at Apple that was really uh, formative and an internship at Sun, Sun Microcomputers. And then I started a company called Trilogy after that and then did that for a couple of years and then worked at Apple and then started my own company. So from your time in your internships and then Reactivity, Mozilla, and then Greylock Partners, what are the interesting career lessons you can share? Well, I mean, the main one, I guess you have two that are a pretty big deal. The first one is, you know, make things for as long as you can. It's hard to go back to making things and programming and designing once you start managing people. And so it's just good to keep making things, you know, for as many years as you can. So that's the stuff that makes the world go around. And the other lesson, I guess I would say is figure out who your tribe is, who who the people that you want to be around and collaborate with and laugh with and cry with and work with for your career and figure that out as early as you can. You know, find your tribe is the phrase we use a lot of times. So how do you switch from an operator to a venture capitalist and how does it differ from moving from the sell to the buy side of startup financing? You know, I don't I don't think of it as sell side and buy side. I, I think of it as, you know, basically there are certain things that operators are really good at and certain things that investors are good at. And for me, I just like building companies and building great products with great entrepreneurs. And so I was on the operating side of things for, you know, probably 20 years of my career. And I've only been on the venture side for, you know, five or six. But, you know, the way I do ventures that I try to find companies and entrepreneurs that I love, and then I try to spend time with the companies and try to help them build great things. So I guess the one, the couple of differences that are interesting because you know I see, I'll see you know 400 companies a year and I'll really only say yes to invest in a couple of them, whereas you know if it was an operator you're really very focused on the thing you're doing all the time for a long time, so that's one thing. And then I guess the thing that's a little funny as an investor is if you're not careful you end up thinking you know a lot more about wondering more a lot more about the things that you're not doing how they're going instead of focusing on the things that you actually are invested in so so it's called fomo fear of missing out and it's easy to fall into that trap as an investor a little bit i recall from listening to your panels and some of the conversations you have you talk about when you're considering a startup investment is always when you actually have a disagreement or debate about the startup that is the one that you actually invest how do you come to this thesis then 
Oh, well, that's all about just people who are closest to um, a domain having real conviction about what's going to be interesting and what's going to grow. It's one of those things where I guess I would say that we have domain experts. So like I'm about as good as it gets on sort of productivity software or the web or mobile application development, that kind of stuff. Whereas, you know, other people might be like reads really good at payments or marketplaces. And, you know, what you try to do is let your best investors really shine. And so you, you really try to get your best investors to do that, to have conviction about the things that they know well and then not strive for consensus, really. What are the interesting companies you have invested in Greylock? Well, you know, early I did Instagram and Tumblr and Dropbox. More recently, I did a company called Quip, which is, you know, they just got bought by Salesforce. Yeah, it was formed by Brad Taylor yeah. from former CTO of Facebook, right? Yeah, of course, yeah. Why I wanted to get you here was because I've been watching the 20 videos of a course that you taught together with Reed Hoffman, Alan Blue, and Chris Ye in Stanford last year called Technology Enabled Blitzscaling. And I was listening to the part on the blitzscaling at the tribe stage and the story of Mozilla. I wanted to start off in a very quick introduction. Can you provide an overview of technology enabled blitzscaling and why startups have difficulty moving within different stages, such as from the tribe to village and then village to city? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, well, so my partner, Reid Hoffman, who started LinkedIn, and my partner, he's my partner at Greylock as well as an investor. And we taught a class in the fall, last fall at Stanford with Chris Yeh and Alan Blue, who's another founder of LinkedIn. And just the idea was that Silicon Valley companies have a characteristic way of, of scaling, which is, you know, you kind of spend a lot of time looking around for product market fit. But when you find it, you punch the gas as fast as you can because product market fits kind of this magic thing where you've built the right product and it matches the market. And so then once you find that, you try to grow as fast as you possibly can in a lot of different ways. And the analogy is to the Germans blitzkrieging in, in World War II. And the idea is that when they were fighting a battle, they would go extend beyond their supply line. So they would assume that they would win the battle and have time for their supply lines to catch up with them. And in a lot of ways, that's what startups do, which is you just go and you assume that you're, that you're organizational and all this other stuff, your technology debt, all that other stuff, that eventually it'll catch up with you. But it takes some time. You know, it's a risky strategy. Sometimes it makes companies grow too quickly, which really often kills them. But it also lets companies win in big ways. So typically between each stage of the transitions, for example, from tribe to village, how long does it allow the company actually move from one stage to the other while they are blitzscaling? Because you're, while you're trying to scale up, you're trying to add new things, but you also need to stabilize the organization. Yeah, it really depends. There's no real rule for how long the stuff takes, but it could be, you know, it could take, you know, quarters, months to quarters to years in a certain stage. But in our class, we really talked about how there's the, the, you know, the very early stage when you've got, you know, one to 10 employees and then you've got next order of magnitude, bigger stage, you've got maybe 10 to 100 and then 100 to 1,000, 1,000 to 10,000, 10,000 plus is really when you're scaled out and you're looking for revenue. And the, re the reason we organize it that way is because most times the number of employees you have is correlated with revenue more than being correlated with users just because to get revenue, you have to sell. And so you need salespeople to do that. So anyhow, it's very hard to tell like how long any of these stages will last. They're, it's all over the map, really. So during the course, you discuss your time in Mozilla when the organization is moving from a village to a tribe. Can you provide the context about the web browser industry with Microsoft Internet Explorer dominating yeah. at that time? And what were the challenges that Mozilla was trying to solve? 
Yeah, sure. Of course. I got there was about 12 people in the company. And by the time I left, it was about 300. So that, that's the growth you're, that you're referring to. You know, when I got there, we were maybe five, six, five or six percent of the internet users in the world. And that's an amazing accomplishment because before that, Microsoft, most people use Microsoft Windows. This is our operating system. It's not like today when everybody's using Macs. So many people are using Macs, not to mention mobile. But then Microsoft was really dominant and with 96% market share. And as a result, like 96% of the world used Internet Explorer for their web browser. You know, Firefox came along and started being used by early adopters, so by techies and by people who do tech support and you know, developers and that kind of stuff. And we just started to grow. And over time, that growth, we were able to get those early adopters installed Firefox on their schools' computers and their churches' computers and their libraries' computers. And it really spread like that. It was, a, I mean, it was an interesting time. Once we got to about 10% market share. And so, you know, when we were at 4 5 or 6% market share, Microsoft didn't really pay much attention to us. They didn't really know what was happening or or what, who we were, they thought we were kind of a weird thing, because we were, we were weird, we were open source, and we were a nonprofit. But you know, by the time we got to about 10%, and all the developers were already using it to develop their websites, then it got quite serious for Microsoft, because everybody started testing with Firefox, people stopped testing with, with Internet Explorer, because it was harder to do, and it wasn't as good for developers. And so, you know, it's just one of the things, once we got to 10%, we just started growing and growing and growing. And I think we maxed out about maybe 25% of the, of the world's web users, and which translates to about maybe a quarter billion people in 2008. I'm sorry, half a billion people in 2008 using Firefox. It's actually very hard to appreciate because at that point in time, Microsoft has actually dominated with IE6. I, I mean, one of the interesting questions I always have, I mean, I started using Firefox very, very early as early adopter. Why did Firefox started as an open source project instead of taking on Microsoft as a private company? Oh, well, because we thought it was impossible. I mean, Mitchell, and this is all credit to Mitchell Baker and Brendan Ike, but they looked at it and said, well, Microsoft is a huge company and with lots of revenues. And that was a time when it looked like small companies couldn't compete, which maybe it looks like now, actually, with, with Google and Apple dominant again. But uh, it didn't look to anybody like 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 Mozilla was, could do that. And so what we said is, like, well, how do we turn that disadvantage into an advantage? And how do we get everybody in the world helping us break the stranglehold of Microsoft and open source is the way to do that. One thing that's very interesting that I actually heard from the lecture where you give is that Mozilla uses a lot of the community. How did Mozilla leverage the community to build up the influence in the web? Well, a lot of ways. So, you know, a lot of people committed code to core Firefox community. A lot of people, you know, localized into different languages. So we had an amazing localization community that would translate it into French or German or Chinese or Mongolian. And so, you know, one of the special things that we could do is we launched, I think we launched Firefox 2 in 70 different languages on day of release. And that's compared to Internet Explorer, who's launching in, they would launch in English on day of release. And then a couple of weeks later, they'd launch in French and Italian and German and Spanish. Then a few months later, they might get to Korean or Chinese. And so, you know, for this tiny little organization to be able to launch in 70 plus languages on day of release was a shocking, a shocking development. And Microsoft just never didn't even really understand how we were doing it. I think one of the interesting parts in Asia, I mean, with Gen, he probably would have told you about that Korea was 96% Internet Explorer because of a particular hack they have with DirectX. And it, they only recently, I think three years ago, started only able to use Firefox. 
and now Chrome as well. What are the other interesting hacks the team has actually adopted in terms of trying to scale? I guess the, my question is that Mozilla is, is a non-profit organization. How do you motivate people to focus on your mission? Oh, that's easy. People ask about like, well, you don't have stock options and you can't, it's not like a lottery ticket like Google or Facebook, but people make a lot, make decisions for lots of different reasons. And Money is only one reason, and I don't think it's even the main reason that people make decisions about what to work on. I think that if you build a great mission, I think a lot of people will come find you. So we just had a lot of people who were really motivated to try to make sure that the web didn't belong to Microsoft. As far as hacks, we, we weren't really a very growth-hacky kind of company. We, we tried to make a product that people liked, and we just tried to build out the community as well as we could. We just didn't do a ton of growth hacks, honestly. I'm curious to know, you started with Mozilla as the... Vice President of Development and Business Operations. What did you learn and how did you eventually end up becoming the CEO? <laughs> well, I started my own company before that and I went to Mozilla. Just I really loved the mission and I loved the web browser. But you know, I joined in this role that was supposed to be kind of peripheral, which was gonna be on the side, which is like I you know, I could work on a relationship with Google or Yahoo or whatever. And what I learned about myself is that I'm not very good about being on the edges. I'm I'm better at being in the center. And so I just started doing more and more sort of core things for the company and I recruited Reed Hoffman to the board and Joey Eater to the board. I recruited Mike Trepfer, who's on the CTO at Facebook, to come. And, you know, we just we did a lot of team building. And, you know, about a year after that, I became the COO. And about a year after that, I became the CEO. And it was just a very natural, organic thing between because Mitchell and I learned how to work together well. We got along and, you know, it, it was always her company her organization, hers and Brendan's, and try to be as good a caretaker and steward and leader as I could be for them. And because you believe in the mission, so it becomes very easy for you to execute the operation and the management of the company. First thing I say, like working with Brendan and Mitchell is I mean, not easy. They're so sharp and so smart and so good at what they do. And they're very particular in their views, which I think is a, a great strength. But it also makes it somewhat challenging to find a good match for them. And so, you know, I think the mission alignment was always clear and always good for us. For me, I just managed to, it, the way I, that I worked kind of matched the way that they, that they were able to work. And that was, it developed over a period of years together. How does one actually set the goals and metrics in the tribe stage? when they go from village to tribe? Because I think in the village state, they're much more chaotic, and then you start to put in structure. Yeah, it was pretty chaotic. I mean, we were like, I think mostly you're trying to find the smartest people you can and ask them what they think the most important problems are to solve and then try to help them go solve them. That, that sounds kind of ridiculous, but it, that's what we did. There's, Chris Beard was a brilliant marketing marketer and so you say to chris like hey chris what do you need what problems do you need to go solve like and how do we let's talk about how to how to make sure you can solve them and i think if you depend on if you get great people and you look around the landscape and say you know go take that hill go figure that out go figure out how to market go figure out how to build the next browser i think by and large strategy takes care of itself in that way, or rather, it doesn't. It just doesn't take a lot of work. It takes a little bit of work, but not a lot. In the talk, is that you talk about having Mozilla making some really major key decisions during the tribe stage in blitzscaling. What are they? Why are they so important for Mozilla to scale to the later stage? Like you talk about the hiring piece. Yeah, one thing we decided to do is we decided never to win, hire somebody 
never to have somebody want to come based on what salary they would make. The idea there is just that if you have people that are focused on salary, we were happy if people wanted to go work for Dropbox or, or sorry, Zynga or Facebook or Google, and they wanted to say, well, if I would, I would just work at Mozilla if you would increase my salary. We tried never to never to win on that because as a result, if you do that, you start to get mercenaries, supposed to missionaries. And Great Luck was just always a great missionary place. We always were good at having people who really believed in the mission and wanted to make it better. And so you try, deciding about what kind of people you want to hire is a critical, a critical thing. And then there is a part of that you talk about the distributed organization. How does that work? Oh, that was the other critical decision we made. That's right. We decided we were never going to be able to out-recruit people locally in the Bay Area just because Google had such a recruiting advantage. But that there were lots of people around the world who really cared about and loved Mozilla and wanted to work on it, but they lived, they lived in Warsaw or they lived in Berlin or you know something like that. And so for us, we just said, well, we're going to make that work for us. We're going to recruit people from all over the world. And if they want to work from home, we let them work from home. And I think that was a decision that not a lot of people were doing at the time. Uh, I think more are now, although still truly distributed organizations are still fairly rare. But it really it changed everything for us. And I think the other decision you talk about was having the community as insiders. What, what does that mean, actually? Yeah, sure. So that really is just that I think it's real easy if you're in a company to forget what it's like if you're not in company, if you're if you're outside. And so for us, it was just always the idea that, you know, we would treat people, even contributors who were just not employees, we would try to treat them like they worked for the company. And they'd get business cards, they'd get invited to they'd get invited to all the internal conferences, things like that. We would, you know, have all hands meetings where they got to talk about what was happening and hear the inside scoop on everything. And so you try to do everything you can to create really a feeling that they belong. And, you know, it's, it's not just a feeling that they belong, but, you know, they really do belong. And, and I could feel the community spirit because I'm one of those people who purchased the Firefox T-shirt, you know, all the, all, the, yeah. all the launch events during that period of time. One major decision I know you guys have actually made is to ignore the enterprise. And I, I think a lot of people don't appreciate that it is actually very difficult from a, a consumer web to go into enterprise web. You made that deliberate decision to ignore the enterprise. Can you explain a little bit about what was the thinking behind that decision? Yeah, we, we did. You're right. Decide to ignore the enterprise. And that, that was just a realistic decision that we couldn't. We were too small to be able to do everything. And we wanted to prioritize being really good for normal users. Mm. And, and that's it. And so if we were going to make a decision on where to spend time, where to spend resources, it was always going to be to make it better for, you know, just normal people and not easier for enterprises to deploy or anything like that. I think that decision served us quite well, too. I think it, you know, Firefox eventually would get bloated, but it wasn't then. I think it really resulted in a more, in a, in a be easier, better consumer experience. I probably thought the last key decision you, you mentioned during your talk was the importance of mission. I, I think you have, over the whole course of this conversation, you stress that the mission is very important because it actually influenced a lot of things like the hiring decisions, the distributor organization, the community, yeah. and the ignoring of the enterprise. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think the, the more general point to make is you should know why you do things. And 
you should know whether you're there for money or for mission to change the world or what. And you should try to be as honest as you can. And once you're, once you're as honest as you can, can be, what that means is that you should be able to use it for lots of things. So, you know, we just used our mission all the time because it was, it was a pure expression of who we were and what we were about. You know, I think if you get the mission right, it becomes an important tool to use all the time. Is something that we will have to think and learn. And John, thank you so much for coming on the show. My last question to you, how do my audience find you? Oh, yeah, sure. You know, easiest is Twitter. John O'Lilly on Twitter. I'm on Twitter all the time. So one of my favorite things to use and do. And so I'm pretty easy to find there. Yeah. You can find me at bernardleong.com or at bleongcw. Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. We can find it in iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, and Google Play in the US. And of course, drop me a comment and feedback anytime. And John, once again, thank you for coming on the show. Of course. Thank you very much. Nice to talk to you, Bernard.